Well, I make no bones about it. One of my favorite sources, analytical sources, is Doomberg, a group of people with a background in industry, commodity industry specifically, that writes with great depth and popularity, I might add, be the most popular financial uh, writers on Substack. And again, I sort of feel that they took the analytical world by storm and they did it with a simple formula. Know what the hell you're talking about, do it with some depth and do it with clarity and at times humor too uh, with that. So I'm very pleased to welcome back to our show, Doomberg. Thanks so much for finding time. Mike, for you, anytime, of course. It's a great pleasure to be back and looking forward to another amazing discussion like we had last time. Well, I just want to start with this is that, you know, you, as I say, I, I think it's not uh, an overstatement. Say so you took the analytical, analytical world by storm. Of course, you've got that background, but, you know, come on, two and a half years ago, who's Doomberg? You know, 15 minutes later, you add another 100,000 followers to Twitter. Then you say, I'm going to go on Substack and I become the most fine, successful. And I'm just wondering, when you do all that kind of stuff and you write with clarity and it's really against the public narrative, um, you're going to get some blowback. So I just, Myself, you write in a variety of subjects. I just wondered, where do you get the most blowback? You know, it's an interesting question because my initial instinct is to say we haven't had that much blowback because we generally show our homework and, and yes. try to stay fact-based. And we we link to every piece that we reference and we always try to promote the work of others. And our specialty is bringing the industrial lens to the problems of the day. And there's very few people willing to do that because they're an industry and they're guarded by public affairs teams. and worried about stock options and themselves getting personally canceled and all of those things. But we do have one area when we write about that, we do get some blowback and that's when we occasionally drift into the crypto space. Mm. And in particular, um, some of the Bitcoin maxis uh, don't like some of the things that we write. And so I would say the one time that we got significant blowback was when we pointed out um, uh, this whole model that we've developed for analyzing crypto, which we sort of call the the dollar world and the crypto universe and the pipes between them and follow the fiat and, and those types of analyses, which I think have proved quite prescient. Um, we did get a fair amount of blowback in that way. But as it pertains to the core of what we write, energy, climate change, solutions yeah. thereof, um, the politics of energy, the economics of energy, we have such a depth of experience and expertise on our team we are willing and able to debate anybody anywhere on any forum so long as the opponent um, has authentically held beliefs that they are willing to express politely and we show our homework and we we are you know we we've gotten very few facts wrong in any of our pieces and when we do we're the first to admit it and correct it and and ponder how it is that we made that mistake and i think that um the success of Doomberg can be attributed to Yes, the clarity. Uh, We have an outstanding editor, and I think our pieces are very tight. You know, an editor is not a proofreader. Yes. An an editor takes good writing and and tries their best to take it to the next level. And and we have a very, like I I was telling you before we hit record, it's edit day today, which is my favorite day, because I can just begin to brainstorm and ponder the next piece. But the editor has taken what I've written overnight and is setting about the task of turning it into a Doomberg piece. And and that industrial lens is, is very much missing. And I think Many of our subscribers are uh, not only Wall Street, but also people who work in the industry who are cheering us on because we're sort of carrying their torch for them in a unique way. And that, that's the real inefficiency in the market that we manage to occupy and succeed with. Well, I think, I, I, I think that's an absolutely a formula that's missing too often is here's my research. 
here's my background to understand which parts are important within that sort of whole environment and then putting it out. Uh, and it, you've done such great work on climate, but also on what I would call the impracticality of the renewable energy thing. And the most blowback, just by ways of uh, sharing, the most blowback I ever got is, is saying, great, you want to do renewable energy, where are you getting the stuff? You know, but a, a strong statement in that regard, you're not prepared whatsoever to actually have a practical application. You know, we talk about the failure of the grid uh, to adju uh, adjust at this point, those kinds of things. And I just think your approach of having uh, the depth, I think, but as you just said, you provide the, uh, you know, sort of background for it, the understanding of it in so many different ways. Uh, and let me just come back to energy then. Uh, what's your assessment, what we've learned? And I mean, Obviously, there are areas that have improved. For example, the attitude toward nuclear, I'm, I'm going by the polls in Germany, seems to have adjusted uh, somewhat more positively. You know, in Canada, we have Ontario moving ahead with nuclear. But overall, have you, do you sense that we've learned any lessons really from the last, say, year and a half? It's, it's a fascinating question, and it's the subject of what we're publishing on um, hopefully tomorrow. Um, and... Um, I do think we are seeing a renewed momentum towards logic and physics that uh, in our own small way, um, us and several others, uh, influencers, uh, are trying our best to shape the narrative. And look, this is what a democracy should be about. Um, we're yep. very much pro-free speech. Um, there's lots of people with big platforms that I think produce idiotic content and, and yep. dangerous content. And I'm not here saying they should lose their platform. I think they're a voice. And if they're more effective than we are at, at, um, at, at articulating their arguments, then the shame on us for not being better. Um, but we have jumped into the arena and, and we're doing our part. I think, and the piece we're putting out is on this upcoming COP28 meeting, this annual uh, yeah. jambor uh, jamboree of grievances, as we call it in the piece. Um, I do think we are at or near what we're calling peak ESG. Um, I think that... Um, ESG and renewable energy and, and put it this way, the ability to ignore trade-offs is a luxury of the rich. And we're spending that money very quickly. Uh, fiscal situation in the US, fiscal situation in Western Germany, industrial situation in Western Europe, I should say, not Western Germany, but of course, Western Germany is, is the at the apex uh, of these challenges. Um, I think the time for uh, indulging in thought experiments is quickly coming to an end. And our view has always been, let's take it as an axiom that we would like to minimize our carbon emissions. There's another side of the scale, which is we'd also like to maximize the, the standard of living we could um, deliver to all of the humans on the planet, which involves a combination of creating as much abundant energy as possible and equitably sharing it across the population. And, um, and so the, the time for um, indulging in fantasies that we could um, you know, shift our grid to weather-dependent renewables is quickly running out. And we think COP28, which is set to be held in the United Arab Emirates, is going to devolve into a farce. And um, I don't know if you know this, Mike, there's 70,000 people expected to attend this meeting. Oh, no, I didn't know that number. And yeah. as, as we say in the, in the piece, we actually made it, we draw a bar chart of the number of attendees per COP meeting. And it's, it's a blow-off top exponential. Uh, the very first meeting was in Berlin in 1995, had a shade less than 4,000 people at it, 18-fold increase. What are, we, what are all these people doing? Yeah. We, 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 we talk about it in a piece like, by the way, we, we are famous amongst our friends and colleagues for never having meetings. 
one of yeah. the secrets of our success, we, you know, about the, the way in which we could research, write, edit, post, and promote seven to eight pieces a month with a very, very small team is because we refuse to accept meetings, which means all we do is productive things. Yeah. And, and meetings are a giant waste of time. And, and again, as we say in this piece, um, the, the, the futility of a meeting increases proportionate to the number of attendees. And how can you get anything done with 70,000 people? And yeah, I, I, it's, I couldn't it's agree insane. More. In fact, when I, when I was an executive, I was famous for the five-minute meeting. If you want time on my calendar, send me the pre-read, ask me the decision you want, come to my office, I'll give you the decision and explain why. We could shake hands and walk away and you can have 55 minutes back. I don't need the show pony, you know, uh, dog and pony show and, and to try to impress me, impress me with your brevity. Um, so. Well, I mean, the COP meetings, I think, have been a farce, but some, uh, sometimes very noteworthy. For example, uh, I was talking earlier this week about Al Gore's comment after COP26, when he basically said, we're going to have the technology to measure everyone's carbon footprint in the next year. And then society can decide whether to reward or punish it. I, I thought that was a frightening statement. Uh, another one, uh, coming out of the same meetings, actually, I think it's called I'm trying to think it's what, which consensus it's called, because there's always a new consensus, probably the Glasgow consensus, where 39 Western countries basically said, we want to uh, make sure that Africa never gets out of uh, energy policy because we're not going to put any money toward any kind of energy project. Then we got the shortages in Europe and they said, well, we'll put toward that if you send it to us. So <laughs> I agree they're a complete waste of time, but sometimes they really let us know into their thought process. Uh, but I do think that this ultimately is is counterproductive to their ambitions. Yeah. Because and and in fact, the point of the piece cop out is our view, and we wrote about this in a, in a piece a couple of weeks ago, um, published in mid August, uh, called "It Was Never About Emissions." Yeah. Um, the whole stance and approach to carbon capture and sequestration will be the exception that proves the rule. Here you have the fossil fuel industry ostensibly listening to the concerns of the radical environmentalist left and inventing ways to abate their emissions while still generating most of the energy that fossil fuels can provide to allow for all of us to enjoy our current standard of living. And who could be against that? Well, as we wrote in that piece, there's a subtle but, but important semantic shift occurring where environmentalists are no longer talking about emissions from fossil fuels, but they're focusing on the burning of fossil fuels. And it's the burning of fossil fuels that's causing climate change, even if you capture the emissions. And the most dangerous thing that the president of COP28, who happens to be the, the CEO of the, uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company, Al Jaber, um, he, he is making carbon capture and sequestration a focal point of the meeting, which is causing these people to go crazy, yep. boycott, um, attack the country, try to shift the focus towards human rights as opposed to climate. And look, they have a terrible human rights track record, but so do a hundred other countries. I mean, this is, you know, we do lots of business with China. Yeah. And, and so the, the carbon capture and sequestration bait and switch on emissions will be exposed at COP28. The industry has responded in the way environmentalists claimed they wanted them to, and now they're moving the goalposts. And I think this meeting will be the one where the energy industry is confronted with the reality that it was never meant for them to solve. It was always meant for them to disappear. And if they disappear, so does our standard of living. That's not a policy anybody could run on. We're seeing political blowback in, in Germany. Uh, we're seeing political bl blowback here in the U.S. Even Biden's response to, you know, $100 oil last year 
was yes. to empty the strategic petroleum reserve and to panic and to get gasoline prices down before the election because he understands six dollars a gallon gas is the death of the democratic party at the national level what does ten dollars a gallon gas do and that's where the environmentalists want to take us and so the original point that i mentioned at the top of this interview is our whole objective is to bring the concept of trade-offs to an intelligent level where we can have an open and honest debate what's on the left side of the scale and what's on the right side of the scale and what changes do we collectively agree we should do for what benefit and at what cost and right now the population has been sold a lie the lie is as follows we can shift to a carbon-free energy palette at no sacrifice to our standard of living and the only thing that is stopping us are these evil fossil fuel uh, companies who have captured the government and, and are corrupt that's just a complete lie they know it's a lie um, I know it's a lie you know it's a lie but the broader public has been sold this over decades and the sort of the collapse of that wave function that realization that um, this actually is a lie and, and we can't have that utopia. So now that we know that we can't have that utopia, let's ponder what we can have and at what price and then make an intelligent purchase decision like you and I would do as consumers at the grocery store, for example. It's just been so woefully lacking. I mean, I've been this sort of lonely voice continuing when they propose policy in Canada. And I would say that in my opinion, that Canada has no equal when it comes to virtue signaling around climate change, uh, especially on a per capita basis. But and my thing was always just simple, not saying yes or no, but tell me what the cost benefit analysis here. And, and I love your point. I use it in economics all the time and, and mentioned it earlier in the show, which is there are no uh, perfect solutions. There's only trade-offs. And, but that can, can, uh, completely gets uh, ignored. Let me just ask you this. Uh, what jumps to mind when you think the public's, you, you evaluate the public's understanding, but a couple of major myths. One is exactly what you've just been alluding to, that there, that there is a cost to this. We have a necessity of, of, of uh, fossil fuels. Uh, anything else jumps to mind? Uh, the uh, crazy uh, fear of nuclear energy, civilian nuclear energy and nuclear waste is probably the biggest distortion that environmentalists have successfully accomplished. And I would argue the solution to climate change is a, uh, an engaged propaganda campaign to counter the negative propaganda that environmentalists have um, convinced the average, um, you know, um, young married couple that, uh, you know, with, with young children who are worried about the future of the planet, that somehow um, nuclear waste, which is utterly manageable, uh, is an existential threat to uh, to nature and, and to the to the world and to their children and to their grandchildren. This is just nonsense. Um, that is actually the biggest challenge. And I think credit where credit's due. Look, you could say Canada has an awful lot of virtue signaling around climate change, but at the same time, Ontario in particular and Alberta also have some pretty uh, sensible energy policies. Um, Ontario in particular, uh, we wrote a piece called Cheat Codes, um, basically claiming yeah. that Ontario shows the rest of the world how it can be done. And kudos to the to the Ford government uh, for for articulating that policy, championing it in public, um, putting their money where their mouths are, and setting up Ontarians for generations of, of clean, carbon-free power, baseload power, reliable power, in a safe, effective, uh, and economic manner. Uh, and they they show how it can be done. You know, Justin Trudeau aside, you know, we have a lot of uh, affection for Canada and uh, for a variety of reasons, and we know the country quite quite well. I can assure you. Um, Canada, like Australia, is probably one of the two richest countries in the world, maybe top three with Russia. When you just look at 
the endowments, the, the commodity endowments that the country has been blessed with, the strength of their institutions, the marvelous universities, amazing culture. Um, uh, you know, Canada is really, in spite of its political leaders, is 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 one of the few passports I, w- I would love to have. I mean, the, the, the future of Canada is very bright. Uh, and I would say that the, um, the political discourse in Canada still amuses us. We love, you know, parliamentary question period and, you know, the CBC and CTV and Hockey Night in Canada and all of those great traditions, um, you know, that make Canada an amazing place. Um, but, but what really makes Canada an amazing place is this an abundance of hydropower, of forests, of fishery, of freshwater, of farmland, of oil and gas and coal and coking coal and metals and nickel and zinc and gold and copper. I mean, you have it all. And for a country your size, um, having been blessed with so many resources, I do believe this proves that um, you know climate, uh, you know, uh, showboating is truly the luxury of the rich. And Canada is amongst the richest countries in the world. There's just no, no, no two ways about it. Well, I mean, it's astounding the efforts that have gone to not take advantage of the very things you're talking about. You know, I mean, I, we talked to, I'm proud to say we, we went right down to the farm on this show, talking to farmers and, and some of the policies, you know, obviously the war on fertilizer right now being waged, uh, most notably in the Netherlands, but in, you know, against methane gas, most notably in Ireland, you know, we have the same things going on here. Uh, so agriculture's out. Well, of course, we don't want to really take full advantage of our oil and natural gas. That's proven. You know, uh, we'll see how well, how fast they can permit. They've they've come to realize that maybe we can help on the uh, supply chain challenges that, uh, for renewables because China owns so much of them and, and controls so much that we could do something. We'll see how fast that goes. Uh, you know, the list goes on about I, I agree with your list. But the other, you know, unfortunately, the overlay is we seem determined not to take advantage of it. Uh, let me I'm going to talk just one more thing about nuclear. Because uh, one of the things we hear about nuclear, and you've written about, I think is important, which is, you know, people say, well, it's just too expensive. And I sort of go, man, that's like our housing market. How much do you think that uh, governments contributed to those expenses? You know, regulation, et cetera, can raise the cost. Uh, It just doesn't have to be this expensive. Look, nuclear is expensive by design as a consequence of the highly effective propaganda campaign that the, the same environmentalists we mentioned earlier have been executing for 50 years. Canada built a gigawatt a year for 10 years, uh, 50 years ago. Uh, France built 60 gigawatts of nuclear capacity 50 years ago. You're trying to tell me that technology has gotten worse in 50 years? This is the one area where we haven't learned how to do things better, safer, cheaper, yeah. faster? Of course we have. Great point. 100% of the incremental cost of nuclear is by design. It is litigious. It is regulatory. It is meant to block, to delay, to make more expensive on purpose so that those same environmentalists can turn around and say, we shouldn't do nuclear because it's too expensive and it takes too long. Um, This is a political choice. China's building 50 reactors right now. Do you think they have the same impediments? Of course they don't. Um, So uh, China is churning out uh, nuclear reactors at a cost of $3 billion a gigawatt. That's the price. If we were serious about it, that's about what it would cost us. And um, at that price, it's, it's a pretty compelling because, of course, you have no carbon. You have 60 to 80 years of baseload power. You have high-paying union jobs uh, for professionals that become the anchor point for communities. Um, and, and you literally just, it's, it's the ultimate set it and forget it trade. And, and Lord knows we're wasting way more than that on chasing this renewable you know, nonsense. And so the, the Inflation Reduction Act 
you know, we wrote a piece called 100 Diablos. I don't know if you saw it, Mike. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, and we had a great Spaceballs reference at the end of it. Um, effectively, we did a thought experiment. There's this crazy technology developing called uh, direct air capture where fossil fuel companies are trying to take sort of abundant excess energy in the field and use it to capture CO2 from the air and pump it underground as a way to offset their carbon emissions. And, and we said, hey, how much nuclear power would you need to offset 100% of the U.S. carbon emissions? So we could keep burning diesel and gasoline and natural gas and coal. And we would build these machines that would just suck all of that CO2 out of the air and pump it underground permanently. How many nuclear power plants would we need to, to power the energy needed to make that happen? And it roughly comes out to about 100 Diablo Candy nuclear power plants or 200 gigawatts capacity. At $3 billion a gigawatt, which is what China's churning these reactors out for, that's roughly one Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. yeah. And we would solve, we would, we, would go, we would get to net zero just by doing that. Now, look, there's all kinds of other constraints and, you know, labor and technical expertise and so on. But thumb in the air, broad strokes, back of the envelope, McKinsey-style interview question as we framed it in the piece. Um, it's, it's about 100 Diablo Canyons or two per state. Well, I, the other thing that is brought up there that I know you've, you've talked about, but we know the supply chains dominated uh, for renewables, sorry, and EVs dominated by China in so many different ways. Uh, and yet, when you try and do a mine in the U.S., and you've written about this, who's opposing it? The environmentalists who want renewables. Do you yeah. know, I mean, the disconnect is unbelievable to me. I have no explanation for that level of disconnect. I mean, we do think it stems from the Malthusian origins of these organizations, but that's probably a, a subject for another day. But um, they, they are fundamentally anti-human. They viewed the world and nature as something that exists outside of humanity and that humans are basically the cancer that is spreading and ruining nature. Um, we have a different view, um, which is that humans can prosper and flourish and we could get much smarter about our footprint on the uh, uh, environment. Our, our good friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, who yes. is the host of a great podcast called Decouple. Decouple means how do we decouple the human flourishing from our ecological impact, and we'd be all for that. Um, I think, for example, the, the plastics in the oceans is a giant scandal driven largely by our desire to, quote, recycle, and all that does is have us ship the stuff overseas and they recycle it by dumping it into the ocean. Um, you, when you go across Lake Superior, you don't see that, but when you see it all over the Pacific. Um, and so, you know, burning of tires, there's all manner of things we do that, is, that are very dumb and damaging to the environment, and damaging to humans and causes asthma and, and so on. Uh, we should be, you know, setting about the task of fixing those things post-haste. We're not uh, unbridled capitalists. We do think that significant regulatory controls uh, are important. But what happens is we have them here and we don't have them there. And so what happens is China takes over all of these supply chains because they're willing to do the literal dirty work. And then they have us over the barrel on things like polysilicon, um, you know, uh, rare earth metals, the metals that feed the magnets, that feed the electric motors, that, feed, that, that power the electric vehicles, and, and the magnets that are at the heart of the wind turbines going up all over the U.S. Midwest and, and so on. And so, um, you know, we, we need to have policies that protect domestic production of the hard things to do, recognizing that there is a, an externality that's worth paying for, i.e. strict environmental controls, 
um, and that we shouldn't just allow Wall Street to offshore all this stuff and then send it back to us at a premium where we're still damaging the earth because all of this stuff. You no, know, I remember when I was in industry, Mike, and China first started to take over the, um, the solar sector, and I was in the sector at the time. And I remember specifically pitching um, a procurement team at, at a very large you know, B2C company that you would recognize that has all manner of giant booths at these COP meetings. They like yeah. to you know, uh, brag about their, their sustainable bona fides. And I remember talking to the procurement person saying, you do know that China has stolen our intellectual property and that their water treatment plant is a pipeline to the river. And the reason why they're able to sell you this stuff for 25% less than we can is because they're cheating. And he looked at me and he said, that's for the courts to decide. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, and so the hypocrisy yeah. uh, uh, of it all was very plain to us. And this comes through in our writing. Um, back to your you know, uh, earlier questions about, about Doomberg and, and what makes us unique. We have that experience. We've lived it. We know how the world really works. And, um, and we know what the root cause of the problems are. And, and there is a way for us to create an economy. Look, if you drew a circle around the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, my God, what a powerhouse fertilizers, yep. farmland, labor, deep ports, extensive river systems, uh, farmland as far as the eye can see, uranium. We didn't even talk about uranium, yeah. the massive deposits in Saskatchewan. We had the CEO of uh, Next Gen Energy on as, as a pro-tier guest for a fantastic interview last month. You know, we have it all. We have can-do reactor technology. We have enrichment capabilities. You're trying to tell me the U.S. Department of Defense doesn't know how to enrich uranium? And can't pass those uh, those those secrets on to um, to, the, to the commercial civilian nuclear power sector. Of course they can. We have everything we need. Um, abundant fresh water. You just name it. Amazing institutions. All the things we talked about earlier that makes Canada so rich. You could draw that box around NAFTA, and we could be fully self sufficient. You know, we have heavy oil from Canada and and refiners along the Gulf Coast that have been built to refine that oil. Let's build the pipeline. Let's build Keystone. Let's get smart about it. Let's replace coal with all of the natural gas that we have. Um, let's build nuclear power. Let's focus on uh, reclaiming the polysilicon supply chain. Let's focus on plug-in hybrid vehicles to reduce our uh, gasoline consumption in a smart way that recognizes the constraint of battery materials. Let's develop those mines with the proper environmental controls so we don't have to rely on mines in the third world where labor is taken advantage of and, and the environment is degraded all in the name of, quote, climate change, when in fact it's just climate uh, from a distance. You know, I, my local climate is good, so I feel good. In reality, we're, we're degrading the planet just the same. We're just doing it in Peru and Chile uh, and so on. In, in, um, in the cobalt mines of the Congo, I mean, yes. give me a break. Um, the, the hypocrisy of it all is, is so repugnant that it, it sometimes you know, is hard to describe. Um, and you can tell I'm getting passionate about this because this is something that we, we think about all the time. Well, I, and I feel exactly the same way. I mean, there's something about child labor in the Congo that bothers me. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, I'm being sarcastic and expressing it that way. But sure. there's, there's so much, uh, you know, the ESG we started off mentioning. I mean, the, the, I think the game's up, the jig's up on ESG. And you're seeing some companies, but I think the public appreciates, wait a second, you know, that's not quite, uh, you know, quite the way it's supposed to be. And so much of the movement has undermined itself. If it, climate change is your biggest problem, I would suggest that the problem is over time, uh, we found out the emperor has no clothes. You mentioned, you know, COP, COP 28 coming up and all the other COPs, you know, just to become a luxury climate fest for elites. You know, how many private jets are going to get them there? Uh, the list just goes on here. And 
we've just started to maybe address some of the practical considerations as, as Germany, sorry, I'm going on myself, but as Germany sort of, a, I mean, come on, how big a farce can it be that they get rid of their nuclear plants and become the biggest coal importers, you know, uh, you know, to power their renewable grid because it needs backup power, Th those kinds of things. Uh, I, I just, I'm just not sure where we are on that, but I think the public has become a lot more aware and a lot more impatient with some of the nonsense we've been uh, fed. When we ponder whether we are at sort of phase shifts or you know yep. seminal moments, uh, we'd like to develop the sort of the metrics that we, we we pull up on our screen every day. And one of them is, frankly speaking, the popularity of the AfD party in Germany. Um, hmm. Look, this is a party that um, the, the media establishment in Germany has labeled as far right extremist and anti-immigrant and you know sexist and homophobic and pick your favorite you know yeah. uh, label that they throw against these. People and, and we can't say that we've read their party platform too thoroughly, but as a protest vote, we think their popularity in the national polls and the establishment's reaction to them is one of the things we watch very carefully. I think many of the people, quote unquote, supporting AFD would find much of their platform distasteful, but they are so frustrated with the establishment that this is the only outlet that they have to express it. And and I think this is something that we watch very, very carefully. We've always warned our friends on the left that the path function matters, that on the path from abundance to starvation is riot, both mm -hmm. physical and political. And the growth, you know, the doubling of the popularity of AFD and their winning of certain local elections, it, this, is, this is the early signs. And this is what we're watching. And if it plays out the way we think it might in Germany, we suspect that politicians in the rest of the sort of G7 countries will will catch wind, catch 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 a, a sense of the direction in, wh in which the wind is blowing and shift accordingly. And that's why we think COP28 will be peak ESG. We think it'll devolve into a farce. We think carbon capture and sequestration is the ultimate calling of their bluff. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we as a team can't wait to watch what happens from a distance. We would never go, of course, because we don't attend meetings. Well, I can hardly wait to read about it, uh, you know, on doomberg.substack.com, doomberg.substack.com. I'm a subscriber, uh, again, because of the depth and the research and the perspective of people who've been in the industry. Doomberg, I mean, we could talk, I could talk all day with you, uh, give you a headache, I'm sure, but give, <laughs> with your background, the knowledge, et cetera. Let me just say thank you so much for finding time. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to the next time, Mike, and, uh, and have a great rest of your week. Thank you.